We're going to look at encountering God. And uh, to do this, I'm going to look at a portion of the life of Moses. And uh, some things we need to understand about this that I think is pretty uh, wonderfully portrayed and will be in the book of Acts. So turn with me to Acts chapter 7. And uh, what, what took time to bring this about, I pray God is doing a lot quicker now. We need a quick work. But to have that quick work, we need to allow Him to do it. We need to embrace what He's wanting to do. Just like that song, you know, I will make room for you. I will allow you to do what you want to do, is what the whole cry is. And that's what our our heart should be. But encountering God, Acts chapter 7, beginning verse 22. Now what this is, this is uh, a portion of Stephen's sermon before he is uh, stoned to death, and he is speaking this to uh, the religious elite that were were there and those others that were enraged at him. Uh, And it tells us in the midst of his message, he says, Moses was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being mistreated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defense and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would realize that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day, Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was mistreating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler or judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? When Moses heard this, he fled to Midian, where he settled as a foreigner and had two sons. Now, of course, Stephen is giving a highlight of the event, and uh, he did not reference Charleston Heston and the Ten Commandments. Okay? So uh, he actually did... uh, know the Word of God and was highlighting it according to the Word of God and that. So there's some things here that we need to, to look at. And the first thing I want to touch on is, is Moses tried to do God's work man's way and it failed. Whenever we try to do God's work man's way, it's going to fail. It fails in churches. It fails in denominations. It fails in, in individual lives. It fails. That's all it is. As long as you try to do God's work your own way, it's going to fail. And it doesn't matter if you became rich and famous as a result of it. It'd still be a failure. It's not the outward, in essence, of how somebody may look that you have this big mega church and you say, wow, God must be blessing them. It may not be God's blessing at all. It may be just the opposite. And so we have to understand that when we do God's work, it has to be done His way. And if it's not done His way, it's not God's work that's being done. It's man's work that's being done. We are not, not told in the whole story, whether in Exodus, because this comes out of Exodus uh, chapter uh, 2. And so, however this exactly happened, Moses was taken and adopted as a, uh, as a prince of Egypt. And just like it says here, he was educated in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in speech and action. So, notice that it says he was powerful in speech. People try to say he had a speech impediment. He did not have a speech impediment. Okay, he did not. 
when he went in before the burning bush and said that, that he had stammering lips, what it was he hadn't spoken Egyptian for 40 years. Okay, He was going to have a hard time trying to present the truth with the limitedness of, his, of the language that he had let slip. So it wasn't the aspect that he had a speech impediment. He was powerful in speech and action. So you have to look at this man that was adopted, that became a prince of Egypt, was taught by the best of the best of the best that there were in the world at that time. He would have been taught in warfare. He would have been taught in religion. He would have been taught in economics and ruling and all the dynamics that would be be taught to a prince of Egypt. And he became a man that was influential and powerful and wealthy as being under Pharaoh. Somehow or another, the truth came to him that he was not Egyptian, but that he was an Israelite. That he was from the people that were slaves to the Egyptians. We're not told how that happened, but I would have to imagine it had to be quite an emotional, agonizing time. But then a man that would have been highly educated, probably had a fantastic mind. We can see that how God used him uh, when the call was in his life to actually begin the work that God was preparing him for. And so you see this man with with great intellect, and he begins to process, maybe I was brought into Pharaoh's house and became a prince that God wants me to deliver the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. Maybe it was the Spirit of God that had spoke to him and he didn't understand. But somehow or another he came to this knowledge that he was to deliver Israel. But it wasn't God's time. The man hadn't been prepared. And so because the man hadn't been prepared... The work of God could not take place. So that preparation is serious. It's serious. That's what, what it is really to become a disciple, that we allow the preparation in our life, the development of our character, of who we are, that God can do the work through us that He wants to do. And if we, if we thwart that at any time then we stop God from accomplishing His will in our life. And if we go even into that calling, we more than likely will be ruined to it because we'll move away from the Spirit of God and God doing it through us to begin to do it through our own self. And so here you have this prince of Egypt that realizes his real heritage and is going to, in his own strength, try and begin to deliver Israel. And he got mad at the Israelites because they didn't recognize it. Isn't that interesting? Got mad at him. Says, don't you realize I'm here to deliver you? And says, what, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And all the dynamics of what it was and how he fled Egypt were not told. Just little highlights here, but, you know, it's like with, uh, with the Ten Commandments, they try and insert a whole lot of Hollywood in, in the story that's not there in Scripture. He ends up going into Midian. And what ends up happening is he becomes a shepherd. And from an Egyptian mindset, the lowest of the low in social status were shepherds. I mean, so you have to look at what God did. God took this man at the pinnacle of human success, a prince of Egypt. Now, he didn't have the ability to be Pharaoh. He wouldn't have been made Pharaoh. But here's this man of great power and prestige and everything that somebody could dream of he had. And then for him to be at that height of success and to plummet down to the place of becoming a shepherd, you and I can't comprehend how huge that fall is. But it was huge. 
And so he's in Midian. Eventually marries a woman, has a couple of sons. Her father is the priest of Midian. But he was not some pagan priest. He did believe in the one true God. And so here's Moses trying to do God's work man's way. So the whole problem is the man wasn't prepared. He didn't even know what preparation was. He didn't know how to get prepared. And so what do you do when you look at the Ten Commandments? You know, Moses leaves Egypt, ends up in Midian, you know, and all the dynamics that goes on there, you know, marries uh, uh, one of uh, Midian's, uh, the priest of Midian's uh, daughters. And what happens after that? Well, it seems like he's a shepherd for a little bit and then ends up finding the place where the burning bushes and the story goes on from there they make it seem like that was his conversion essence that's where he began to worship god but that's not the reality that's not how men of god are made that's not how women of god are made men and women of god are made in the secret place they're made in that crucible where they begin to deal with themselves their fleshlight by the time moses finally saw the burning bush and heard the voice of God speaking to him, God had been dealing with the man for 40 years. Understand, you don't get the pride of, of a prince out of your life in a week, a month, or even a year. Pride was so deeply rooted in that man, God had to do a 40-year deliverance in essence, to get that out of him until eventually he had the testimony given by God, not by himself, but given by God that he was the meekest man, not in Israel, but in the entire world. I mean, that means God's looking at every human being, knows the reality of every human being, and says Moses is the most humble man on the planet, yet he was the most powerful man on the planet. Absolutely astounding. And what do we do? We fight this whole process of what it is for God to begin to deliver us from ourselves, to deliver us from our pride, our self-will, our own ambitions, all the, all the junk that gets in the way. God has this wonderful work He wants to do in our lives, and we get in the way of it. We thwart it because we got all these agendas, all this stuff, and we won't just give up. We won't just yield. So we fight, we resist, we want to do things our way, we still want to operate in the flesh, we don't want to come to the place of surrender, so you know what? We don't encounter God. We don't encounter God because we have not put ourselves in the place that He can begin to reveal Himself to us. We are not told of that very precious secret time of those 40 years where God was revealing Himself to Moses, taking Moses from, from a, a, a pagan worshiper to become a worshiper of the one true God. But there was a process there. There was a work that was there. There was the humbling that was going on. There was a place of laying aside everything and realizing I can never have and I should never have that place of power once again. I didn't know how to deal with it. It wasn't right. I was a, a usurper in essence. And he had had to deal with the reality of what kind of man he had made himself. Had to deal with it. And that's painful. In verse 30, it speaks about the making of a man of God. After 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to Moses in flames of a burning bush in the desert near Mount Sinai. And so it was in the wilderness where he was being delivered from self. And you know, the hardest thing about self is to see it. You want to know so much self is still in us because we don't see it. 
And you want to know why we don't see it? Because we really don't want to see it. We don't want to have to change. We don't have to want to deal with it. We may know repentance is a necessary part of our Christian life, but we still don't want to have to repent beyond well, what is absolutely necessary. So we even resist the, the aspect of God trying to come to us in the small ways that whisper, that would speak to us and show us things in our life that are contrary to Him. Not because He's wanting to abuse us, because He's wanting us to encounter Him in greater ways. He's wanting to, us to encounter Him in greater ways so that He can use us in greater ways. But I've got to be willing to embrace that. I've got to allow it. I've got to welcome it. Rather than run from it, rather than push it down or push it away and say, no, 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 I'm tired of having to deal with all this stuff. Well, what's the, what's the, uh, the uh, uh, opposite side of dealing with all this stuff? You're just full of self then. That's all it is. You are just full of self, living for self, and that's all that's going to define you. So either you deal with the stuff or you're going to walk in the flesh. And you walk in the flesh and we're told in the Word of God that you cannot, you cannot please God. So in the wilderness, he was delivered from sin and self. And in the wilderness, he began to know God intimately. He began to know him intimately. We do not know how this knowledge came to him. Did it come partially through his father-in-law, the priest of Midian? Possibly. We don't know. But yet, I do not doubt in the least that, that he had the way that the Holy Spirit was speaking to him in the secret speaking to him in ways where he was just out there as a shepherd and he has all the sheep and he's alone and the voice of God is somehow speaking to his heart and bring him to the place to begin to understand some truths and he probably didn't even know how to put it all together at that time. Why am I here? What's this all about? The questioning, the doubting. And yet in the process of it, this man is, is rising up to a faith that was extraordinary. You understand, you don't get to the place of having faith like Moses had to stand before Red Sea and to have all these complaining Israelites wanting to stone you and the Egyptian army on the other side of a, of a pillar of fire. I mean, you don't, you don't get to that place in a moment. You don't become that kind of man, that kind of woman in a moment. To become a man or woman of God that has that kind of faith, there is a lot to go through. A lot of dying, a lot of practicing, if I might say it like that, of believing God in putting yourself in the place of faith that God can do something. If you never do anything, you will never make a mistake other than doing nothing, which is a bigger mistake. Right? So you have a nice, safe little life. You don't ever make a mistake because you don't do anything. I'd rather see somebody that's making mistakes in the effort of trying to learn and grow and mature because that person's teachable. The one who doesn't want to do anything isn't. And so now there's the place of the sending of the man of God. You see, Paul brought out a thought, and he brought, brings this out in some of his uh, epistles at the beginning of it. says, a man sent from God, not by man and not by self. So Paul was a man sent of God. John the Baptist had the testimony of a man that was sent from God. That's what God wants to do. He wants to send his people. He wants to send his men, and he wants to send his women. He wants to send his teens. He wants to send anyone that becomes a true follower of Jesus. And where does he want to send them? Somehow or another into the building of the kingdom of God, either within the church of somehow effectively building it or going into a perishing world. One way or the other, we are to be a, an integral part of building the kingdom of God. But he wants to send us. And you, if you say you don't have a call, 
That's not true. It's just that you've not taken the time to pursue it and understand what is it. You've not put your hand to the plow and says, God, what is there to do in the churches? Help me to serve any way I can then. If you don't know what your call is, there's enough to do in the, in the kingdom of God. There's enough to do in the church and, and, and at Meadowview and so on that you get yourself very involved in trying to reach people. In the process of doing something, you'll begin to understand what your call is. But if you don't do anything, you're not going to know what your call is. So in verses 31 through 33, when Moses saw this, he was amazed at the sight. As he went over to look more closely, he heard the Lord's voice. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look up. Then the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. Now, something that's very important about the Exodus itself is that God was, right, is, was striving to teach Israel a very important lesson. You know what that lesson was? That the Lord God is not like the pagan idols. The Lord God is holy. That idea of holiness is pressed and pressed and pushed and spoken in so many ways, trying to show that we are unholy, God is holy, but God can take unholy people and make them holy. You are to be a different people because I am not like the pagan gods out there. I am not asking you to do child sacrifice and all the perversion, all this stuff. I am holy. Approach me as holy. You know what? The God of the Old Testament is God of the New Testament. I read something just recently, it was interesting, that the Old Testament has uses the word mercy four times more than the New Testament does. You know what we try to say? Well, the Old Testament is a book of law, and the New Testament is a book of grace. They need to read the Bible again. Okay, it's grace from cover to cover. And I'm not going to take the time to go into all that, but it was grace that even the law was given. And... Uh, Moses trembled with fear and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. You know, it's kind of interesting that here you're getting to the end, not the end end, but the end just before the call actually comes. And what is God wanting to instill in Moses right here? The training has been going on. The Lord has been teaching him. The man has, has come to know God to whatever extent it was. There was a, the man that was coming under the place of true humility. And you cannot be truly humble without God doing the work in you. You understand? And that was something God was doing in this man. Not something that was natural in Moses. Because it wasn't natural in Moses. It's not natural in any of us. It's a gift that comes through the transforming grace of God. And God was doing that in this man. And so he was sending the man through the holiness of God. That's serious stuff. Because God wants us to be holy people. And when he sends us, he wants holy people going that are going to be holy, holy in the situation, holy in what they do, that the world looks at it and they may not comprehend it, but they see holy men and holy women living out a holy life that are representing a holy God. That we need to be men and women. If we're going to encounter God, we've got to begin to lay the foundation of the character in which God will reveal Himself. Because when you look at revival after revival, and you can go to virtually all of them, and you'll find it was, it was prayed in by a handful of people. Always. Is it that God couldn't do it through a bunch of people? Yeah, but there wasn't a bunch of people that wanted to do it. So He does it through a few. So the Welch Revival, they say it was, was a score of people, which is 20 people. So they were young people. 
these young people prayed in the Welch Revival that at the end of it was anywhere between 100 to 150,000 people were saved in Wales from that revival. But he had to get hold of some people that were going to walk with God, that were going to walk with in holiness, that were not going to live in compromise, that were no, no longer going to go back to the world and live like the world. They had, he had to find these people that would stand in the gap that he could pour his power through. He's looking for it today. We can talk of how much we want revival, but how much are we willing to put our life in the place that we might see God do it? We talk about wanting to encounter God, and you know, it's wonderful to encounter. It was good. The Spirit of God was here this evening, right? Isn't that wonderful? 100% grace. You know, because the reality is we can't even praise Him down. Yet, it says that God inhabits the praise of His people because He responds by grace. Praise is not manipulation of God. But when we lovingly adore Him, he just loves to show himself. Sending of a man of God through holiness. Sending of the man of God through compassion. So what happens next? In verse 34, the Lord says, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their groanings and have come down to set them free. I think this is so interesting. I have come down to set them free. Now come or if you go into the Old Testament, now go, I am sending you. I've come down, I'm sending you. That's how he does it. We want him just to come down and we can sit back and watch. And it's wonderful when we've done all the labor and all the work and prepared the way and God just shows himself and we can sit back and just adore for a little bit. He'll only do that for a little bit. He's going to say, you know, you've got to be intimately involved in all that I'm doing, or I'm not going to continue doing it. So there's times to stand back and just adore and be awestruck when you see what he can do. But he's inviting us to be a part of it. And so he has seen the, the oppression of the people in Dry Ridge, in Williamstown, in Walton, in Corinth, and all the other towns. He has seen the oppression. He knows what's going on behind closed doors. He knows the horrors, the nightmares. He knows the tears that people are weeping, that children are weeping after they've been abused. He knows. He looks. He sees. He cares. He's filled with compassion. Then he goes to his church. I'm coming down to save them. Now you go. You go. You go after them. But you can't go if you're not going to walk in holiness. You can't go if you're not going to allow Him to prepare your life. You can't go because if you go in unholiness, you will disgrace Christ before the world. If you go in your own strength and power, you'll disgrace Christ. Because then the world will look at it and say, what is it you got to offer? What is it? What makes you any different than me or the Jehovah Witnesses? And then in verse 35, Stephen went on to say, this is the same Moses whom they had rejected with the words, Who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in a bush. So God was wanting to take Moses that for 40 years, and you know, just I don't doubt that he had some sentimental thoughts about the people of Israel, but 40 years, he's been away from it a long time. 
I mean, he hasn't seen the slavery that they were going through. Now, I don't doubt he saw slavery and caravans that would come through and the slaves that they were trying to sell and the stuff like that. And so, yeah, he saw some of the stuff, but he'd been 40 years removed from it. God was now wanting to bring to this man compassion. Compassion. Because how can he send us to a perishing world if we don't have compassion? How can he send us to those who don't know him unless we begin to really care about the reality of their lostness and their condition? You see, he wants to instill in us compassion, but guess what? It's not just going to pop into your life. It has to be sought after. It has to be wanted. It has to be prepared for. It has to be inspired. In essence, being put in the place of need. That that compassion might begin to waken in you. Begin to see some of the pain and suffering in this community. And if you don't have some kind of compassion rising up in you, then maybe you need to get saved. I don't know what would be wrong. Because we can't see the suffering of humanity and get the raw truth of it and, and remain hard. That indifference comes from sin, not from relationship with Jesus. So here you have the Lord that was doing all this preparing of the man, bringing him to the place of humility. Because you know what? Without that humility... God could not have done the miracles through Moses that were done. Because Moses would have robbed God of the glory. So God was developing a humble man that he could entrust the presence and the power to Moses that the presence and power could come to the people. You see, why does God want us to encounter Him? Why does He want us to have these times of experience and just enjoy Him? So we can go out the doors of the church and speak about a God that is alive, a God that is real, a God that is present, that we can go to and say, man, we got an awesome church. God shows up. Why don't you come and check it out? Right? Isn't that really what He's wanting? He wants us to become so geeked over the reality of God being so near, so present, so real, that we can't be silent about it. But, you know, a ministry to puppies might be messy, but it'd be kind of fun, wouldn't it, you know? But puppies don't need a ministry. (laughs) People are messy, but they're not necessarily fun and cute. (laughs) Right? I mean, people are a mess. And you know what they do? They make humongous messes and bring everybody in their life into that humongous mess. So ministry to people is tough stuff. But what is God's work all about? It's about ministry to people. So if you're going to get involved in the lives of people, you're going to get messy stuff. You're going to be dealing with the, the, the pain, the sorrow, the misery, the, the garbage that's in people's lives. It's just a reality. You cannot begin to have compassion and not have it begin to deal with the messiness and the ugliness of humanity. That's what we're called to. Not to live. That's why we've got to be holy. That's why we've got to be people separated. That's why we've got to begin to allow the Lord to instill and work into us this humility so that He can begin to do something through us. We won't rob Him of the glory, but there's going to be the compassion that is taking this to them. Because He's not going to reveal Himself for no reason at all. You understand? He reveals Himself for a reason. Why is He doing it in this church now? Why? Just so we can enjoy His presence? Nah, that's part of it. He doesn't have a problem with us enjoying Him. But there's more. There's a dying world out there. 
And so guess what? Moses had to begin to deal with the messiness of people. Now, Pastor Jeff, you got 50, 75 people in the church. I don't know. I never keep track of numbers. I have no idea. How would you like to pastor a church of 3 million? You'd never get out of the counseling doors. I mean, you'd be at that. You'd just, you want to talk about nightmares, okay? You want to deal with some mess. I mean, you're dealing with some big, 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 big mess here. And so in the 36th verse, it says, He led them out of Egypt and did wonders, miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. Now, that's kind of a synopsis of what happened because God developed a man so that God could use the man and pour himself through the man. He encountered the man so that the man would be able to speak that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me. I have seen him. He has spoken to me, right? He could speak to the Israelites. He could even speak to the Egyptians about the reality of a God that was present, of a God that speaks and communes. And I guarantee you, the Egyptian gods could not speak. And so he led him out of Egypt. Where did he take him to? Took him to Mount Sinai. Why? Because they were going to have an encounter with God. What was the purpose of this encounter? What was that all about? The first thing he told them to do, he said, set perimeters around the mountain so the people don't go up to it and die. Okay? Now, they just went through the whole thing of, of deliverance from Egypt. And think of this, a people in slavery for 400 years... And first, one miracle comes, and they're kind of opening their eyes. A second miracle, and a third miracle. I think by the fourth miracle, there's a distinction that's now being made between the plagues coming on Egypt and not on Israel. All of a sudden, the people that were beat down, oppressed because they were in slavery, now start thinking, wow, maybe God is real. Maybe the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob really does care. And by the time you get to the tenth miracle, they are just wound up, and they believe, God loves me. And then they come to the Mount of God, put perimeters around it so nobody touches it, so they don't die. Okay, this is God schizophrenic here? You know, he loves me, he wants to do it, don't touch it, I'm going to kill you. You know, I mean, no, they're trying to get the whole picture of who this God is. They didn't know him. They didn't know who he was. They didn't understand. They didn't understand the reality that yes, he is loving, but yes, he is holy. And if you don't understand His holiness, you're never going to understand rightly His love. And so Moses goes up the mountain. And what do the people do? They come to Aaron, want him to fashion an idol. And so in verses 40 through 41, they told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. That was the time when they made an idol in the form of a calf. They brought sacrifice to it and held a celebration in honor of what their hands had made. As, and we know from the story, Moses does come down from the mount, the Ten Commandments that God wrote with his own finger and cut out of stone himself, gave them to Moses. Moses came down the mountain when he saw the, 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 the evil that they were doing. He broke those Ten Commandments. God says, okay, now you cut them out. I'll write in them again. You cut the stone tablets out and take them up to me, all right? So that wasn't necessarily the wisest thing for Moses to do, but he uh, did it nonetheless. So what happens? God 
is going to destroy the Israelites. Going to destroy them. Goes to Moses. Moses, I'll make a great people out of you. I'll just destroy all them. They're rebels to the core. I'll just make a people out of you. And Moses says, no, no, no. Don't do that. Don't do that. Well, I'll just, I'll send an angel for you then and drive out all the inhabitants of the land. And you can go in there and inhabit it. But I'm not going to go with you because if I go with you, I'm going to destroy you. That's pretty scary. You know, what is God trying to teach them? They had this tame little view of God. They had the ideas of the Egyptian gods. You know, now they're seeing God as loving. But now this holiness is coming to them. And the reality of God encountering them. So God comes on the mountain and they trembled. They were terrified. You know, the fire on the mountain, the roar of the trumpet, the mountain shaking, they'd feel it under their feet. They were terrified. And that was good. Because the Lord told them, says, they need to fear me so that they won't sin. But Aaron gives in to the fear of man. I want you to understand something here. This is serious stuff. The number two man, who became the, the, the spokesman for Moses because Moses was not fluent in the Egyptian language anymore. He sent his brother, Aaron. So Aaron, by default, just the sheer aspect that he would be by default the number two man, becomes a number two man, in essence, becomes that second place. He becomes a man that builds a golden calf and leads the people into sin. Why? Because the man didn't have the manliness, the courage, the strength to do what was right. You want to be used of God, it's going to take you being a man of God, a woman of God, it's going to take something that you've got to allow God to build up inside of you and make you strong. He says, I am bowing no more to these idols that I bowed to in the past. I will no longer serve those gods. I will no longer let them be part of my life. I will no longer let them dictate my life to me. I am going to stand against hell if I have to. And you know what happens when God finds such men and such women? He does exploits through them. He does wonders through them. Not through their own strength and wisdom, but they come to the place that they are usable because they say, I will not give in to the culture. I will not give in to the pressure. I will not even let the church dictate to me what I should do. That can be done in arrogance and self. But you understand, if you're a man or woman of God, that's not there. And you're doing it then out of obedience. It says, I will not. And we have a great example of that with Peter and John. When they, the Sanhedrin council went and says, stop preaching in that name. It says, will you tell us whether it's right to obey you instead of God? You know, they said, no, I'm not going to listen to you. I will speak the words of God and the reality of God. You know, it can, that can be done in arrogance and full of self. But when it's done in the right way, there's the way we stand against the culture, stand against the world, stand against everything that we can walk as what we should with God. Now, I just want to terrify you with something because the Lord went to Moses and you see this in Exodus 33 where he uh, went to Moses and he says, I am angry enough to destroy the children of Israel and I'm angry enough to destroy Aaron too. Named Aaron. I'll tell you what, man, you want to talk about some scary stuff? That to me would be terrifying. It's like, in essence, God's looking at you. I'm ready to destroy you right now. Terrifying stuff. But we need to cultivate a compassion. 
So what would happen? What would happen if you knew that your children and your spouse was going to be to be killed by some crazy individual, what would you do? What if they were already captured by this individual? Would you care? Or would you go and say, ah, I can get another wife, another husband, no big deal? Or would compassion start to rise up in you and your heart breaking over the reality of what they're going through? What would it produce in you? You see, Moses realized what was going on. He was coming to the knowledge that God was holy. And he was understanding this holy God is very angry at these people because they are very unholy. They are wicked. And so he knew God was ready to destroy them. So what does he do? He goes back up the mountain to intercede. Goes back up the mountain to begin to cry out that God would spare the people. And that's some serious stuff. Let's, let's just look at this for a little bit. Now we're going to go to, to Exodus 32. And so Exodus 32 and 33 is uh, some of what we've been talking about here. But it says, Moses went up back up the mountain to intercede for the people. And in verse 31, so Moses went back to the Lord and says, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. I mean, those are just, man, those are words I can't pray. Do you understand, God, I will go to hell if those people don't. Would any of us really pray that? I mean, there's some compassion going on in this man's heart. And this doesn't come out of nothing. This is the development of God in the life of this man, building him up, making him more and more to have the heart of God. And now he's crying out, I will go to hell. I'll be cast aside that they might know you. Paul prayed something very similar. Now, God doesn't answer the prayer. He won't. Okay? But nonetheless, he is moved with such compassion. Yes, he he's moved with such compassion. And so the Lord replied to Moses in verse 33, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. So he brought Moses to the reality Okay, those who have sinned, they will pay for their sin. All right? I'm not going to bring judgment on an innocent. He didn't say except for Jesus. All right? But that was different. Jesus would be our... So you have the situation where God is, is seeing this compassion, moved by this compassion. Nonetheless, the Lord struck him in verse 35. The Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Now, can you imagine, can you imagine the pain that Aaron would have to have? Or would he have to carry upon him for his guilt? All the people died because I built a golden calf. Because I was not man enough to stand up. I was too afraid of the people and I gave in. That would haunt him for all of his days. Did God forgive the man? I believe God did forgive the man. But nonetheless, what a weight 
What a weight to have to live under. I am thankful for forgiveness. But why am I saying this? Because God wants to reveal himself in greater ways to us, corporately and individually. But we've got to prepare the way in our own lives to become the men and women of God that he will show himself to so that he can show himself through us to a dying world. But there's more to this. We're not at the end yet. Because God is wanting to cultivate in us a passion for him. And you know, that's the hardest thing. I think that's the hardest thing because that is the first commandment. To have a passion for God is summed up to love Him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. What is all of hell trying to do to keep you from that? What is the world out to do to keep you from that? There's only one who really wants you to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that's Him. Now, your loved ones and fellow believers, yes, that, they can be part of it as well. But we have to realize that, that we are opposing everything of this world and everything of hell, and they are out to try and extinguish any kind of passion we have for God, any kind of love. We are under assault more than we understand at that very point to try and have other idols, other loves, other gods in our life. And so God is wanting to cultivate this passion for Him. And verses 1 through 3 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought out of Egypt, Go up to the land. I promised you on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give you, give to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Hivites, and Jebusites. But go, go to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. I already referenced this, but here's God doing this work and in this man trying to cultivate something in him because something's going to happen in a couple of minutes here that we're going to see that God was really trying to bring Moses to. You see, God wasn't done with Moses. God did, did all that work in the wilderness, did this work at the burning bush, did the work through him that's, that's going on as he believed for the miracles and the parting of the Red Sea. I mean, doing all this work, but yet God is still doing a work, a deeper work, because Moses needed something even deeper in him than he had yet experienced. In Exodus 33, verse 7, Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside of the camp, some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And uh, this is very interesting, is because uh, for a time he was going up to the mountain to meet with God, then, then God must have given permission or directed him or whatever it was to take a tent and put it outside the camp of Israel a ways. And when Moses would go walk to the tent, everybody would get in the doorways of their, of their tents and watch Moses head to the tent of meeting. And they would literally watch the pillar of smoke by day and the pillar of fire by night come over when Moses entered in, come over the tent of meeting. I mean, you think he was meeting with God? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of obvious, right? Everybody knew he's meeting with God. Okay, what are we going to get this time from him? All right, what are we going to hear? He was meeting with God. He was being instructed. Okay, so the pillar of would rest over the entrance of the tent of meeting, and, and uh, then the people would worship the Lord. Good response when the presence is there. That's what the presence of God should be doing. It should be making us worship Him. And, you know, I'm not trying to get into the worship situation, but I'll tell you what. 
you, you can either be just dead weight or you can be part of what's helping God to do the work. Either you are engaged in the worship or you're just going to be a spectator. And you know the spectators get left behind. It's those who are, are lay aside their pride and their fear of man and just worship with abandon because they are finding him so good and wonderful. And that's what he wants to do. We will get out of worship only what we put into it. Verse 11 says, The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friends. Then Moses would return to the camp. I love this. I love this next point. But his young age, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. That, that phrase, face to face, is in the Hebrew would be mouth to mouth, right there. You want to talk about uncomfortable. Man. I mean, okay, Moses was a man of God, yes, but still really uncomfortable. That close, but yet really wonderful. You know, you can be that close, and you are trembling, and you are terrified, and you are filled with awe and wonder, and just desire, because you're seeing him more and more. So the Lord would meet with him. But Joshua, the only man that would take the place of Moses was his young age, Joshua. And what does it say? Joshua loved the presence of God, if I might say it like this, more than Moses did. Moses, you know, he's in his 80s now. You know, he was still a young, spry kind of guy, so it wasn't like he was, you know, decrepit and, and with a walker. But, you know, here's this, this man that he goes back to his own tent, to his wife and children, and Joshua stays in the tent. And all I can imagine, he stayed there and just sat and just reveled and enjoyed and wept and just was in the wonder of that presence. Do you know how much is learnt in that place of sitting at the feet of Jesus? Then in verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked. Why? Because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. I will do the very thing you have asked. I will go with you. He's saying, I will go with you, not because of the Israelites. You understand? He's not saying, I'll go with the Israelites. I will go with you because you've asked this thing. And since you're going with the Israelites, well, I'll be there by default because I'm going with you, a carrier of his presence. That's what we're to be. We're to be a people that carry the presence of God. Okay, the rest of the people were all carnal and worldly. What was God looking for? A man, a woman that could be a carrier of the presence, could take it into the workplace, could take it into the neighborhood, into the home, take it into every place that they go. Carriers of the presence where the presence of God is resting upon them. Why? Because He knows us by name and our life is pleasing to Him. We bring joy to Him. So when we pray, we bring joy to Him. When we worship, He receives it because it's pleasing and it brings joy to His heart. It's like the incense we were singing about. And I was just over there just going, yes, God, take of that holy fire and set this incense ablaze. Let it be this great aroma that reaches up to you that you just love and revel in. Because that's what God wants to do in his people. 
Then we come to verse 18. If I might say it like this, when you look at this whole story, this, this situation, this is all going on in a few minutes' time. Moses is going through what I would say is the worst trial of his life. You know, he brought, God used him, this, this wonderful whole deliverance and the joy of it and coming to the Mount of God. Now God's going to reveal himself, and God does reveal himself, and it was wonderful and awesome, even though the people were rebellious and didn't go up the mount like they were supposed to, and, and that there, and he goes back up the mountain, and he comes down. It's like everything was gone. They went back to Egypt because Egypt was still in their hearts. They did what they did because Egypt was in their hearts. And now he's interceding that God would not destroy them. And yet, in the midst of it, what does he say? Now show me your glory. I really think that's where God was trying to bring Moses in this whole thing. He was using this, yes, for the benefit uh, of, the, of the Israelites, ultimately, well, I don't want to say ultimately, but also for us, because Messiah would come and we would be saved and we'd be here today because of, because of what uh, the Lord has done. But he wanted Moses here. This is where God wanted Moses. He wanted Moses to be in this place of yearning, aching, desire for him, this passion and because the rest of the church, or how much of the church doesn't do this, doesn't even want it, doesn't even think like that, doesn't mean we aren't to do it because the Word of God teaches it. We're to be faithful to the Word. And when we're faithful to the Word, then we have the joy of experiencing the wonder of His presence. I mean, you could have the billionaires of this world, and they can't buy what we experience tonight. Do you understand? They are powerless. They are powerless to get it. And what does he do? He gives it to those who will meekly and humbly and passionately seek after him. How much more will he do it when we with greater purpose, greater intent, greater desire to walk holy before our God, greater desire to see His name glorified, greater desire to be filled with a compassion for a perishing world, greater desire, this aching, yearning inside of us to see Him. How much more will He do it, revealing Himself to us? Because we're yearning for Him. This isn't about experience, but it's also about experience. You see, it's, it's ultimately about His glory. But it sure is wonderful to experience God. It is absolutely wonderful. And He loves it that we love it. Do you understand? He loves it. He rejoices in it when we begin to enjoy Him. That's what we were created for. When we start enjoying Him, it's like He takes pleasure in this. Yes, that's what I created you for. That's what I want. That's what I have for you for all eternity. You're beginning to taste a little bit of it now. I have more children. I have more. Seek me with greater desire. Become a people who want to know me. And I will reveal myself to you in greater ways. And so the Lord went and answered his request to a certain extent. I'm not going to tell you I understand this. The Lord said, I will cause my goodness. He didn't say, I will cause my glory. He says, I will call, cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. 
he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And I gather that the glory would actually be seeing his face, seeing the fullness, the, the infinite quality of God that no angel, no human could ever stand in. There will always be this infinite quality of God that will be an infinite mystery beyond everything that we would understand, that we'll understand so much more and know so much more of Him, yet it'll be so beyond that. And that's part of what will just cause us to be in awe of Him, that this God that shows us Himself is so big and so beyond we can continue to pursue Him, never come to an end, never come to completion, and He'll reveal Himself more and more and more throughout eternity. And then in that eternity, we will have the perfection of desire after God. You understand? Nobody in heaven is half-hearted. Nobody in heaven is in compromise. Everybody in heaven is in heaven, and they're there because they want to be with God, and it is the normal thing where everybody is passionately pursuing God. Everyone. It's what we were created for, and we see that in heaven, and why shouldn't it be now in the church? Why shouldn't that be the passion that burns inside of us? It tells in verse 8, the final thing here, Moses bowed to the ground at once. And worship. What have we gotten from God that we deserved? Nothing. We've gotten from God only what we don't deserve. And you know what that should do in us? It should produce in our hearts such gratitude, such thanksgiving, such hope, such desire. Father, we come before you now in the precious name of Jesus. There's not one single person here that is finished. We all need greater transformation in our life. We all need a greater vision of you. We all need a greater desire for personal holiness. There's never time in this life that we arrive. We are always a people in the making. But Lord, we can go, as Paul said, from glory to glory to glory. We can have this ever-maturing faith, and we don't have to be on this on this merry-go-round that just goes around and around and around and going no place and we're the same place we were a year ago or five years ago god that is not christianity we are to go into greater holiness and greater desire and greater righteousness and greater compassion lord we're to go in greater experience with you to know you more and more and to have these milestones in our life where we can speak like Moses did. He could speak back at the burning bush, but he could speak at all these other times. Every time he went in that tent of meeting, he encountered you. Every time, Lord, miracle after miracle that he saw you present. Lord, you are wanting to be a God that is so rich and so present and so near and so now, God, that we can just proclaim the wonder of who you are to a world that cannot comprehend the reality of a God that is in the now that is here right now. God, I'm asking that you would awaken our hearts, Lord. Stir our hearts. 
with a desire for you more than we've ever had, Lord. And I know we all get weary. We start seeking. We start pressing in a little bit more. We get excited. We start, we start knowing you a, a little better. And then life gets hard and complicated. And something happens. And God, I'm asking that you'd help us to be a people that will persevere through, will continue, that will not be quitters, that will not stop, but will put before them the prize, this prize of fellowship with the living God, this prize of seeing your goodness pass before our eyes. And Lord, maybe, maybe just a little itty-bitty glimpse of that glory, O oh God, that you would let the weight of your holiness rest upon us. Lord, that you might undo us in your holy presence, that you might be able to send us forth in power and anointing and victory and signs and wonders. Lord, that a perishing world would know that there is a God and that his name is Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would do this work in us greater than we've ever asked, greater than we've ever dreamed, because you are a God that's beyond what we have even asked. Jesus, we plead with you for this. Jesus, we plead with you for this. 